Well, Peter stole a little bit of my thunder. I was going to ask you what's significant about Tuesday. And it's not Halloween. It's the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, or what we call the Protestant Reformation. Actually, the, the Reformation had begun years before, but we, we give credence to the fact that Martin Luther, this Roman Catholic priest, really broke from the church and nailed uh, to the door there in Wittenberg, Germany, to the chapel, what we call his 95 Theses. Uh, two things stand out primarily from what Luther did then and what proceeded out from that day. Number one, uh, he made it very clear that the Bible alone is the primary source of authority. Not papal edicts that would come down from Rome, but Scripture alone. And secondly, that salvation, what we're all longing for, looking for, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. You couldn't buy your way into heaven. You couldn't earn your way into heaven. Salvation is by grace through faith. What many of us don't know about Luther, though, is that he was a, a prolific hymn writer. Uh, there's differing accounts. He, he wrote at least 25 for sure, most likely 45. And his, his most famous is, Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott. A mighty fortress is our God. I can, I can just imagine him uh, sitting around the, the room with his wife, Katharina von Bora, who was a former nun, and when they had broke from the, uh, the papal authority, they actually became married and had multiple children. I can imagine them, uh, as Luther played, uh, them singing that first verse that we already sang. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he Amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Uh, on earth is not his equal. Speaking, of course, there of none other than Satan himself. Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles this morning, either turn it on, or turn in to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And as you do that, I want to tell you a story. Anne uh, Gay-Pierre was sitting at her desk in an office in Hong Kong on Thursday, May 11th, 17 years ago. At about 4 p.m., she received an email. It looked harmless, although it was intriguing. The subject line read, I love you all in caps. And there was a document attached, also labeled, love letter for you. Well, how nice, Anne thought. Just a couple clicks and my curiosity will be satisfied. Too late. I didn't even read the I love you part, Anne recalled. She became known as patient zero, the first victim of a global pandemic, a vicious computer virus. She later admitted only when I opened the attachment did I realize there was a problem. Well, it turned out to be a much bigger problem than anybody could have imagined. As computers began tumbling like a long line of dominoes, silently, lethally, without warning, it raced around the globe, literally just in front of the, sun, the sunrise, and in less than two hours, it clogged global communications and it brought commerce, 
politics across the, la- across the globe, around the globe, to a halt. Because of its unsuspecting, attractive message, oh, just give me a glance, I bear friendly tidings from a loving admirer, headline writers immediately nicknamed it the love bug. One virus, yet so much contamination. It's not the first time a single virus has caused so much grief to mankind. It's, it's kind of a replay, actually, of a much uh, deadlier virus that hit planet Earth at the very beginning of human history. Polluting the first human couple, Adam and Eve. Despite God's warning not to click on Satan's message, they did so. And with appalling consequences for them and through them to all of us, all of mankind, for all of history. And that virus, as we know, is called sin. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Scott showed us from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, the current situation as a result of that original click on sin. As he was preaching, I was taking notes, and one thing I wrote down was, it is what it is. Where we sit, the inheritors of this guilt of sin because of Adam's first sin, it is what it is. We cannot not sin. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by practice. And this is a global reality. This is the defining truth for every person, for all of human history. Even the really good guy, even the really good lady, the person who you look at them and think, oh my gosh, they're just like a model citizen. We all suffer under this scourge of sin, thanks to Adam's initial sin. Adam led us, essentially, to enslave us. But if you'll notice in verse 14, and Scott ended last week with this, with this, this very kind of cool foreshadowing of what was yet to come. In verse 14, we find that Adam is called a type of the one who was to come. Well, this morning we're going to look at that one who was to come. And the Apostle Paul, in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, through verse 21, uh, is going to present Jesus as the answer, Jesus as the antidote to Adam and Adam's sins. And so just as Adam led us to enslave us, Jesus leads us in order to free us from this scourge of sin. Now, I don't know if you had this question last week. I certainly did. And Scott and I actually talked about this throughout the week. When we talk about all of us being impacted and affected because of one man's sin, Adam's sin, is that really fair? Is that really fair for God to condemn the whole world because of one man's single disobedience? Well, I came across an interesting um, description or answer to that, and I want to share it with you. Warren Wiersbe, who used to be the pastor at Moody Church in Chicago, prolific author, he's written commentaries on every book of Scripture. Here's what Warren Wiersbe has to say, and it's, it's the best answer to that question that I've ever seen. It's not only fair, but it's also wise and gracious. If God tested each human individually, guess what the result would be? It it would be disobedience, just as it was with Adam. But more importantly, by condemning the human race through the one man, Adam, God is then able to save the human race through one man, capital M, namely Jesus. Each of us is racially united to Adam by birth. We're, We're connected to Adam by birth. 
But as we'll see this morning, we can become connected to Christ by faith. If you have a worship folder with you, the bulletin, you'll notice on the front of it, it's there every Sunday is New Life's mission statement. And our mission statement is basically to engage those disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. Well, this, this week, this morning, we are going to delight in God's grace because Jesus is better than Adam. The structure, the, the scope, you could say, of our salvation is, and I hope this, is, this isn't offensive to you, but it's not just about me and Jesus, and we got this thing going. He's my best buddy. He's my best friend. That may be true, but that's not the bigger scope, the bigger structure of salvation. What salvation really is, is entering into something much bigger that's already at work around us. That's already been in play for for centuries. And that's what we're going to discuss this morning. So let's look at the passage. I want to read it verse by verse, and then we'll kind of jump back into it and dive in deeply into, into some of the verses. Romans chapter 15, verses 15 through 21, and I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the, that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a whole lot in there. Scott and I were talking this week, we, I don't know if you know this, but the various uh, pastors who stand in this pulpit and break the bread of life, whether it's Eric or Taylor or Travis or Scott or me, we collaborate on that message. So Scott is in Wilsonville this morning, and he's preaching not the exact same message, but close, but he's definitely preaching from the same text. And as we were collaborating on this, I, I, I walked into the meeting on Thursday, and I said, I said Scott, um, help. I've got 16 pages of research notes that I've been accumulating over the last month. And he said, well, part of the problem is you don't preach that often. 
you know, once a month, you're going you're gonna to have that. He said, and by the time that meeting was over, we had whittled that down to about eight pages of notes. Uh, but there's just so much stuff here. There's so much good stuff here. And we both agreed that we could come back a month from now and both preach this exact same passage. And the message might sound a little bit different because there would be new, new things, new ideas. Let me kind of give you a summary statement of what we just read. The summary statement would be this. By the sin of Adam, all men and women became sinners and were alienated from God. By the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we may become righteous and be restored to a right relationship and fellowship with God. This is essentially what Paul says in another one of his letters. It's a parallel text, and it's a great, these two verses are a great text to, to come alongside Romans chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians, in the great chapter on the, on the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That, that is in essence what we just read. Now I want to uh, take you with me and we're going to step back into the text and we'll look at all of these verses in a little little bit more detail to try to understand things. But before we do that, uh, this is my third time preaching here in the two months. Uh, It's not quite been two months since Deb and I joined the team here. Uh, You know already that I like to have some structure. I like to have things, pegs that I can hang stuff on. So this is the best that I've come up with here. And, And actually this is in in deference to my older brother who's sitting in the second row who um, has come to visit this morning. And uh, because Dennis is, a, is a, uh, a mathematician, I want to give six comparisons. We're going to compare Adam and we're going to compare Christ. And now, if this was an algebraic formula, uh, we might start with if A, how much more B? But I've changed it to C because A stands for Adam and C stands for Christ. Everybody with me? Okay, I'm I'm literally going to race through this right now. You can talk to me later if you really want to get a a handle on this better. But we're going to use this structure as we go through looking at six comparisons between Adam, the first man, and Jesus Christ, the perfect man. In verse 16, A is not like C. 17, if A, how much more C? Almost an identical structure to what Paul has just said in verse 15. And then the last three comparisons, verse 18, 19, and 21, all say the same thing. Just as A, so also C. We'll find that in verse 18, we'll find that in verse 19, and we'll find that in verse 21. I specifically have skipped over verse 20, and there's a reason for that. We'll get to that a little bit later. But that's the the structure that's helped me to better understand what is it that Paul's trying to communicate here? Because as you, as you just heard, there's just a wealth of data, a wealth of information. And like, how do you process all of that? This, these comparisons between Adam and Jesus Christ seem to be the mechanism that the Apostle Paul used to, make that, uh, to, make, to get across the point that he wanted to get across. Okay, let's go back up now and look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. Do you see the if a, how much more? Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
This first statement, the free gift is not like the trespass, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a summary statement which Paul is using as an introduction to this whole section. And when he speaks of trespass, he's going to use a couple different words here that we, would, we might want to translate sin. When he uses the word trespass, though, he's, he's specifically talking about, about a false step. That's literally what that word would mean. It, it's, a, it's a false step. It's a, it's, it's a deviation from the path. Um, it's, it's a, and it's not a mild term, it's a very strong term. So right out of the gate, uh, Paul is, is putting his finger on something very deliberate, very important that he wants his audience to get. And so in the city of Rome, who, to whom Paul is writing, he's writing to an audience of Jews who had become Christians. He's writing to an audience of Romans and Greeks, Gentiles, who had become Christians. He'd never met them before. He wants to come and meet them. But in advance of his meeting, he sends them this letter. And so he's very deliberate, very intentional about communicating exactly what he wants to get across to them. If A, how much more C? In other words, God's grace is infinitely greater for good than Adam's sin was for evil. Sin extends to all who are in Adam. And, And we all are involuntarily, by birth. I I didn't have any say-so in the fact that my parents gave birth to me. But yet, I inherit this sin that has been passed down through the generation. But, by God's grace, uh, a transformation can can occur. His grace transforms my life, can transform your destiny. Uh, uh, All who are in Christ. And that step is a voluntary step. So, I, I was born involuntarily, into the, the, the terribleness of sin, but I can voluntarily step into this grace provided in Christ. And notice what Paul says. He says that uh, this free gift, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, will abound. Paul loves to use descriptive, strong terms. And here's another one. He's speaking of something that exceeds or overflows uh, kind of a fixed measure. It's over and above. It's beyond. It's better. It's superior. Thus, the, the summary statement this morning, that Jesus is better than Adam. He's abounding more than Adam. So in verse 15, this first contrast or comparison is really one of degree. The work of Christ is greater in every way. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. It's interesting, in both the King James and the New American Standard, which are a little bit more woodenly literal, they translate that one man's sin as the one who sinned. It's actually a verb, speaking of this, the free gift is not like the result of the, of the one who sinned, who actively committed a trespass against God. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Notice the result. A condemnation comes as a, because of judgment as a result of that trespass of Adam. But the free gift follows many trespasses, and it brings justification. The effect of Adam's sin, in other words, condemnation, is contrasted with the effect of Christ's obedience, namely justification. We'll unpack those words in just a minute. Here Paul is talking about sin as in missing the mark, missing the target, that God had established for humanity. This term condemnation, um, we are literally condemned by one sin, by one man. 
And it's, a, again, a very strong term. Paul only uses it three times. In fact, it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. It may be translated this way, and it's, this is a little more helpful. This condemnation that Paul's referring to is this judicial or legal pronouncement upon a guilty person that leads to punishment. We, we stand condemned because of this sin that we have in, inherited, that we've been born with. But, and here's the great news, because A is not like C, but we're justified, we're declared righteous. Again, another legal term. Uh, it, it's a judicial declaration by God. Because of His one sacrifice by one man through whom all of our sins are forgiven. Uh, think about that. that. That's how great... God's forgiveness is. It's an amazing, amazing thought. This justification speaks to more than just that, that personal, intimate, individual relationship. Uh, we have a new relationship with God. We're no longer alienated. And we have a new status before Him. But we also have a, a legal standing. In a court of law, we have a legal standing based not on anything we've done, but based on Christ's righteousness. And again, that's what Martin Luther tagged to that, or nailed to that, that door. It's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Because of the obedience of Christ alone. Do you see that connection? So, we might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm, I'm okay. I, I mean, I got it together. I've, you know, I've, I've had a great career. I've, or, uh, you know, I've got a lot, of, a lot of nice kids, and things are going well and with my life, and Sorry, it's like that initial computer virus. You might have the, the hottest computer on the market 17 years ago, but it, it still got infected. Still got infected, just as we are as well infected by sin. What's fascinating to me, though, about this verse is the very last part of the verse. The free gift follows many trespasses, and that includes yours and mine, down through the ages, down through history. And the free gift brings justification, even in, in light of many um, trespasses. C.E.B. Cranfield, who uh, lived to be 100 years old, and he was a uh, uh, chaplain in World War II. He served as a pastor to prisoners of war, and then he served as a uh, theologian in residence, taught theology for 30 years at the University of Durham in England. He said this about the last part of this, this verse. That that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment? Adam's sin should be answered by judgment? That's perfectly understandable. Before a holy God, that's perfectly understandable. But that the accumulated sins and the guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift? This is the miracle of miracles. It's utterly beyond human comprehension. And I love that because it it clarifies for us just how significant it is what Paul is saying in verse 16. Let's move on to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I've highlighted just a few terms there. Death reigned, much more we now reign in life. Just uh, open up today's edition of the Oregonian or click through to your favorite news feed. It's rampant. Death reigns. 
It's, it's all around us. And it's a result of this original sin nature that we have all inherited. This third contrast here in verse 17 is primarily one of consequence. It's death versus life. Condemnation leading to death is something that is earned. Grace leading to life is something that is received. Sin has us in its vice grip. Death reigns over all of us. It, it, it appears to be a hopeless situation. Literally, that word reigns means to, to exercise kingly power. That's what sin is doing. Sin is exercising kingly power over our lives. And it, it's a hopeless situation. Inherited sin from Adam, condemnation that results from that, and death that comes out of that are, are givens. It's like, it's like gravity. It is what it is. That's the, the condition, that's the situation in which all of us have entered into this world, have entered into life. But Jesus breaks this seemingly hopeless predicament by who he is, by what he did, and by what he gives. I frequently uh, pray, in fact, I did this morning, met with the worship team beforehand, and I, I will frequently pray thanking God for sending Jesus who came and lived uh, among us. He lived just like us, except without sin, and then he chose to die for us. Jesus breaks this hopeless predicament by that, by who he is, by what he did, and what he gives. We are involuntarily connected to Adam's sin, condemnation, and death, but we voluntarily connect to Jesus. Now, how do we do this? I want to unpack just a little bit more in detail another word in verse 17. This is, again, uh, I, I know I've used this phrase three or four times now, but it's, again, a very strong term that Paul is using that I'm afraid we tend to kind of gloss over. We think about receiving Jesus. Receiving Jesus into my life. Well, what does that mean? What, what, is, what, what is really behind that? And, and the term itself that Paul is using speaks of much more than just kind of passively sitting back and receiving something. It speaks literally of grasping a hold of something. It, it literally means to take up something with the hand in order to, to carry it along with you. To lay hold of something. To take it upon oneself. You've all probably heard that that crazy little parable of the man who was facing uh, his neighborhood was going to be flooded by this overflowing river. And so he prayed to God that God would save him. And his neighbor was pulling out of his, his, his uh, driveway in a Jeep, and, and the water's starting to rise. And he said, hey, come on. Come on, Bob. Come, come with me. And he's, Bob says, no, no, I'm praying that God will, will, uh, will save me. Um, the water kept rising, water kept rising. Now there are, pe- there are people f- floating up and down the street, right, in boats. And they're calling out to Bob saying, come on, well, come on, jump in the boat and we'll save you. He says, no, 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 I'm praying, I'm praying that God will save me. And then finally the water is up almost over the top of the roof and he's sitting on the very top of his roof, right? And a helicopter flies by and they, through a, a loudspeaker, they, they say, hey, we're going to lower a rope Grab on the rope and we'll save you. And he says, no, no, go away. I'm fine. I'm praying that God will save me. Well, he is overcome by the floodwaters. He drowns. He dies. And he stands before his creator and says, God, why did you let me down? I prayed that you would save me. 
you know, in God's response, right? You've heard this before. God's response was, look, I, I sent you uh, a neighbor with this, with this Jeep. I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter, right? God has already sent us his remedy. And that remedy is Jesus Christ. And what, what we, what we need to do is, is reach out and grab a hold of that. Again, as we were collaborating on this message this week, we were, Scott and I were trying to come up with imagery that would communicate that. God is already at work. He's already bringing salvation in through history and in through this world. But we have to, we have to seize that, almost like a lifeline. We have to seize that, take hold of that, take it upon ourselves. Now, really, Paul is, is explaining salvation in a little bit different terminology than, say, maybe John, the Apostle John did in his gospel and other New Testament writers. It's, if, it's if, as if Paul is saying, Adam brought a whole different operating system for life, and it was tainted with sin. Sin weighs us down. Uh, it's like that natural force of gravity. But Jesus, the new man, launched a whole new operating system. And it's run by grace. And it buoys us. It lifts us up. And so, through Jesus Christ, we move from being ruled by death to becoming, notice the end of this, this, this verse, to becoming rulers uh, in life and in eternity. In fact, it's fascinating. Paul's uh, uh, native tongue that he's writing in, Greek, his language literally stumbles over itself, trying to communicate, trying to demonstrate how much more God's gift has accomplished. So the major point of this verse, verse 17, is that the triumph of God's grace will not only replace death with life, but will make us reign in life like kings in the presence of our Father forever and ever. Let me ask you this question. Is that fair? <laughs> you know, we love to ask that question, the fairness question, at the first part. How can it be fair that I would be tainted by sin? I didn't commit that original sin. How, why am I born into that? Is this fair? The fact that God would choose to extend His grace? Absolutely not. In fact, fairness, justice, really would yield death. And what God is saying, I'm giving you life. I'm going to give you a whole, I'm going to infuse you with a whole new operating system, namely grace. Let's look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The more I've studied this passage, the more I realize this passage isn't just simply about the doctrine or the teaching of original sin. It's more about how to get right with God, how to be made right with God. We're connected to Adam by physical birth, but we're connected to Jesus Christ by physical birth. And this one act of righteousness, it could be the, the cumulative effect of all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus demonstrated. But, of course, we also think especially that one act of righteousness was his humility to the point of death, even death on a cross, shedding his blood on our behalf, for our sake, in order that grace would be made known and visible and, uh, and available. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
That term made, made sinners, made righteous, it literally means constituted. It means to be, to be fixed, to established. We are reckoned to be sinners because of Adam's trespass. And this speaks more of a, again, of a, of a legal kind of a forensic significance than it does moral. It's not so much the, the transmission of moral deficiency as it is the sentence of condemnation that extended to all of us in, as, as Adam's offspring. Let's look at verse 20, a verse that I, I left out earlier in terms of these uh, comparisons. Last week, Pastor Scott invested quite a bit of time on verse 13 where the law is introduced. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Well, here it comes again. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Salute. Bless you. Gesundheit. We're speaking in tongues here this morning. The, the law was given, but hear me on this, the law was not given as the remedy. The law is not the remedy for this inherited sin. In fact, it accentuates sin and it makes it more readily uh, uh, available and aware to us in our own sinfulness. It, it in fact, worsened the condition Notice what Paul says at the very end. I absolutely love this. Paul has a tendency to do this. He likes to create words. And he'll take uh, one or two, sometimes three, even as many as four uh, Greek terms, and he'll kind of pound them together. It's sort of like, well, if I tried to pronounce the Greek word that Paul uses here, that we translate with four words, abounded all the more, okay? It's really just one word. I think of that, that term supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Right? Uh, and even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. It's supercalifragilistic. Go ahead. Expialidocious. Okay. Well, that's essentially what, what, uh, what Paul is doing. He's creating a word to speak of how this just continues to overflow. God's grace continues to overflow beyond any measure. The power, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. The power is in the grace of God. Not in the law, but in the grace of God. And it it is that grace that cures our inherited condition. Well, this leads us to um, the the climax verse, which, oh my gosh, there's just, there's so much here that that Paul is, he's kind of reaching a real crescendo here in verse 21. And he uses a little a three-letter term that's one of the most powerful terms that you'll find in the Greek New Testament, the, the, the word henna, which means so that. It's, it denotes purpose. Paul is saying, I'm going to give you the purpose for all this. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John Piper, the retired pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, says this about this verse. God's ultimate purpose is not judgment, but the display of the glory of His grace. I love that. The ultimate purpose of God in creating and governing the world the way He does is the display of abounding grace. Not to the exclusion of the display of His justice and judgment and wrath, but against the backdrop of that judgment 
and wrath. And what does this lead to? This leads to eternal life. And that's, again, a very important term that I think too often we misinterpret. I grew up in a church environment where eternal life was pretty much presented as pie in the sky when I die. How about anybody else? It's something off in the future, something to look forward to, to have hope in. And it is that, but it is so much more than that. I'm surveying the faces of people who are living eternal life right now. It's both then as well as now. Eternal life is as much a quality of abundant, grace-filled life that we experience and we delight in now as it is something to look forward to in the future. And that's what this, uh, g- this grace, this abounding grace leads to. I was reminded of, uh, of this song. In fact, I heard it yesterday. I was, I was rolling uh, shellac on our, on our uh, subflooring at this house that God has just provided for us. I was all masked up. A little girl came by the house to, uh, selling, doing a, a, a school uh, fundraiser selling Christmas ornaments. I think I scared her half to death because I, I had this huge mask around my face. But as I was doing that, this, this song came on the, on the radio. Grace Wins. And you may have heard this song by Matthew West. And the reason I want to share some lyrics here is because you'll probably hear that song this week. And when you do, I want you to click back to Romans 5. I want you to click back to verse 21. There's a war between guilt and grace, and they're fighting for a sacred space. But I'm living proof grace wins every time. No more lying down in death's defeat. Now I'm rising up in victory, singing hallelujah. Grace wins every time. For the prodigal son, grace wins. For the woman at the well, grace wins. For the blind man and the beggar, grace wins. For always and forever, grace wins. For the lost out on the street, grace wins. For the worst part of you and me, grace wins. Well, we end Romans 5 as we began. Our our, our focus is on Look at the last four words. Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you'll scan back up to the very first verse of this chapter, which Scott preached on, I think it was four or five weeks ago. That verse ends with the same statement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Halfway through this chapter, verse 11, same thing. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And now here, verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our focus, again, as always, is on Jesus. Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why this sermon series is called Fully Alive. We are fully alive because we focus on Jesus Christ. And this morning, we delight in God's grace because Jesus is better than Adam. You know, that second verse that we already sang this morning of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, listen to the lyrics again. They'll they'll mean something much more significant based on what we've just looked at in Chapter 5. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. 
were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Hmm. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, wow, what a treat. Your Word... Your Word really slays us when we stop to ponder and think deeply about what You've done, how You've provided the antidote to sin. How the adversary, Satan himself, thought he had won the day, when in reality, this is all part of your plan. To show the beauty of your grace in the life, in the ministry, in the provision of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.